Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. I am Jeff Sackman, your host, and with me, as always, is the co-host of the show, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Dangerous Exponents is our attempt to get into some of the issues surrounding the coronavirus pandemic, just of, of the usual reminder slash caveat, we are not doctors, we are not epidemiologists, we're not really experts, except we spend a lot of time being either journalists or quasi-journalists using analytical tools to dig into issues across the board, not just uh, health-related. So hopefully we have some um, some insights to share, both from our research and from our ways of thinking about these things. But as usual, the caveat is we are not real doctors or doctors of any kind, just sort of amateur economists, I guess. Um, we talked some about the, the rollout of the vaccine last week, but it was sort of tacked on to an episode about mutations. Even though, of course, they are related like every other issue we're talking about. Um, but we wanted to dive more deeply into the vaccine rollout, especially since it is the biggest issue in the news these days. Um, a lot of the rollout has gone suboptimally, let's say. You see the word disaster a lot in news coverage. And that's the first thing I, I want to dig into a little bit. Carl, um, there have been a lot of vaccines delivered to people in absolute terms. We're, we're talking in the millions now. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of delivered doses that have not been given to people. There's a lot of countries that are very slow getting things up and running. So at, at this point, do should we look at this as the glass 3% full or the glass 97% empty? I think we should consider who we let set the denominator for those percentages. So many of the stories I've seen that really want to make the case that this is a disaster are basing that on projections from the White House about how many people would have been vaccinated by the end of 2020. And, you know, that that number is is fixed. The number who have been vaccinated by the end of 2020 is fixed. And so that comparison will live on in these in these reckonings. And I think there was there's a whole story yesterday in the Washington Post that was predicated on the notion of if we just had more accurate projections, then we wouldn't be so disappointed. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, there isn't really something we can compare this to very easily. If we are comparing it to something like the flu, well, those vaccines are ready long in advance and people are getting vaccinated long before the flu is really circulating. It, there are all sorts of logistical challenges the pandemic itself poses. And we're just used to wanting to see percentages that are close to 100. I'm not saying we should be letting people off the hook here. I'm not saying we couldn't be doing much better. I'm just saying that without those projections sort of dominating coverage and expectations, I don't really know what my expectations would have been about what percentage of distributed vaccines would have been administered by this stage. And, and I, I kind of wish I had registered that predict prediction because now I feel very... Um, biased by all the uh, assurances that this is indeed a giant failure. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I didn't think about the the importance of that one projection that the the official whose name is escaping me who who went on record with the 20 million number, he walked it back a little bit saying something that he he meant to say 20 million doses available to be injected or something like that, which I mean, it might've just been a lie. I don't know. Uh, but it, it at least showed some awareness of the, of, of the damage that had been done there. And yeah, we don't really know what to expect. One, one problem, I mean, in, in, it's a problem for people outside of Israel. It's not a problem for people in Israel, but one issue is that 
Israel is doing such a fantastic job and they're up to 20%, I think that's right, of the, of the population vaccinated. Maybe it'll be 21 or 22% by the time we're done recording this episode. But it's really been all hands on deck. They're getting the job done really fast. Um, and it, it's making every other country look extremely bad by comparison. And is that even a valid comparison to be making to say, you know, Israel's at 20%, therefore we should be doing better than three or Germany should be doing better than one or everybody else should look bad? Yeah, I think that's a, gr a great question. Maybe the central question here that if Israel weren't doing what Israel is right now, then it, things would look really different internationally. Is it a fair comparison? I, you know, the the maybe the most persuasive reasons I've heard for why Israel is at such a high number. And by the way, we should probably at some point talk about like how a single measure has become the scoreboard uh, measure for, for these countries and states, which is apparently like percentage of available vaccines that have been administered and whether that's, you know, consistent with what people are, are trying to do in that, their vaccine programs. Wait, but, just, just a second. So you, you think the single scoreboard measure is percent of distributed vaccines that have been administered? I think I've seen that more, at least in the US, than percentage of people who have been vaccinated. Maybe internationally, it's percentage of people have been vaccinated, like you just gave for Israel, uh, and maybe that's that's part of the confusion here because those are both percentages. Um, have you seen more the one you described for Israel? Maybe as someone living outside the U.S., you've you've seen a different scoreboard than I have. Well, I'm very bad at following the news in sort of an agnostic way, so I I I don't think I can say what the what the most common thing is or the thing that most people are seeing in the U.S. or out of the U.S. Um, but it, it, to the extent that I'm following my curiosity, I'm following the, the, to me, the obvious scoreboard measure is percent of the population that has been vaccinated, period. And obviously we want the percentage of, of distributed doses to be administered to be as high as possible with probably all sorts of caveats when we think about them. But we want that number to be high, but I mean, ultimately that's not, that that's not the most important number in terms of stopping the virus. But I guess if, if you're looking for things to complain about with the infrastructure in the US, then I can see why you'd point your finger in that direction. Yeah, because you know I think that gets at one of Israel's big advantages here, which makes it a, a really tough comparison if you're looking at percentage of people vaccinated, which is that Israel paid a whole lot, like a, a big premium, and also had other advantages that allowed it to get pretty much enough vaccine or, or get enough vaccine sooner to vaccinate pretty much its entire population. And to me, that just completely changes the approach you would take to a rollout. Like if the US knew that it would have within a month or two enough vaccine for the whole country, then the whole issue of prioritization would be so different. It would, it would matter so much less who got it first if, if the main point was everyone could get it with an efficient program really quickly. So, you know, and, and that's not to take away from Israel because I think it takes some foresight to realize just how different that is. It's not just that you, you have the capability to do it sooner, but that you can approach it so much more efficiently. And some of the advantages that, that seem to lead them to have enough vaccine sooner uh, seem like ones available to other countries. Some of them are maybe more specific to Israel, like having a really uh, strong centralized healthcare system that, that allows for sort of efficient um, 
you know, registering and, and uh, reaching out to people and also having a really, relatedly having a really strong data systems so that they can get data back to the vaccine manufacturers about side effects and everything else, which is incredibly valuable to them. And then finally, the, the sort of military culture and militarized society in Israel um, seems to have helped quite a bit in terms of marshalling everyone around a, a common purpose in a way that, you know, the U.S. hasn't been mobilized in, in quite some time. Yeah, that's, I didn't expect to get to that point so soon, but since you, you bring it up, let's, let's deal with it right now that, that yeah, I, I read a comment that was really the same thing you just said, just phrased a little differently, that we've heard a lot of war analogies over the last year, but when it comes to thinking about what a society really has to do when it is at war, uh, that means something different to Israel than it does to most of the Western world. Um, and we can talk about some of the good and bad reasons for that, which we probably don't need to get into today. But uh, but yeah, the the idea of mobilizing the whole society that that's that's sort of what Israel does in a way. Like there's a there's a national service program that many uh, many countries don't have or have let wither away. I mean, it, do you think that is making a big difference that, you know, if, if let, let's just say if, if the U.S. had mandatory military service or a national service program, uh, would this be going differently in the U.S.? I do think so. I think a, a lot of um, practice and and just this the structure that you, you need to have in society to be able to to quickly come together around a common purpose is would be really valuable for something like this. I mean, it, it seems like some of the mess in the US to the extent it's a mess is to do with just how decentralized um, the administration is and how every county in the country seems like it has to come up with its own website just to get people screened and, and, and scheduled. And some of it has to do with just a kind of, you know, free for all in terms of people prioritizing themselves and their family and uh, trying to game the system or call every single doctor they've ever had an interaction with, as some doctor friends of mine have described, uh, or chasing every rumor of the, the next available set of vaccinations, uh, which I've heard about Florida. So, it, you know, it does seem like it, I'm sure it helps that Israel is a much smaller country and smaller than many U.S. states in population and, and area. But, uh, you know, I think having that that sort of collective spirit and, and having that just be sort of baked into the experience of being a, a part of the country would, would have to help here. I, there was this funny show in, in Norway, I think it was about a year ago. I don't even remember the name of it. And I'm not even sure I understood it that well since it was in Norwegian. But it, one episode of this show had a familiar TV host talking about all the things that Norwegians said m defined the Norwegian character. And it was, it was quite funny because he went down this list and, you know, outdoor living and community spirit and all these things and then would, would show some very different culture or th a culture we think of as very different, like Korean or something that had one or more of these same characteristics in, in a way he could demonstrate. And I, I say this because when, when you talk about the, the community oriented nature of Israel, I think you could say the same thing about Norway for very different reasons and manifested in very different ways. I mean, it's not, not a lot of history of war here, at least since World War II, but um, 
when when the prime minister made her first big announcements about about lockdowns and restrictions early in the pandemic, which was before it, even a week or two before it really hit in the U.S., um, she used the word dugnat, which is a common word in Norway referring to basically community service. Normally, it refers to things like you know picking up litter before the national holiday, but it can mean something bigger. And it usually has to do with some kind of community service or, or giving back volunteerism, that kind of thing, which is pretty strong here. And to me, it, it seems like if you have that kind of attitude, then a lot of the problems that have arisen in the US, like you're talking about the, the free for all scramble for vaccines, just don't come up. I mean, for, for somebody like you or I, we want a vaccine, right? But at the same time, we know virtually certain with certainty that anybody getting the vaccine right now other than us probably needs it more and if you have that attitude then the fact that a somebody else needs it more b the fact that somebody's getting vaccinated increases our 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 progress on the path to herd immunity means something good is happening it's not happening to me but it's happening to the community which is a good thing fine i'm gonna back off I don't need to stand in line all night. I don't need to call every doctor I've ever had. I don't need to you know, stay up all night trying to log into a medical website. I'm just gonna let the authorities do their job. That, I think if I had to sum up the, the attitude in Norway, even though the response hasn't been optimal here, I think that pretty much does it. Um, do you think, would that be an improvement in the US? Is it, is it partly, I mean, can, can we blame people just kind of scrambling and not having that kind of community spirit or does it come down more to just failed infrastructure? I think these things feed upon each other and it's not just failures here as has been remarked throughout the pandemic. So many of the failures are just being noticed more but have been there all along and anyone who's interacted with a city website you know run using some terrible tech vendor that the government overpaid for 10 years ago and is still using when there are plenty of like great free alternatives from top tech companies um, or, you know, why couldn't that, that sort of function have been centralized so that there was one good program to make, to make such a site instead of scrambling of, of hundreds of programs or, you know, yeah, one, one hospital was using Eventbrite. So that's one way to solve it. Yeah, problem. and that was being mocked. And I thought, look, that, there are probably problems with that I'm not thinking about. Maybe there are security issues, whatever. Uh, but why not? Like, why not? Exactly. Like, th this is a company that is optimizing for for having a good system for this. This is a system that a lot of people have logins for already, and there's a good login system. Um, and you know, then I think about hospitals and and the medical system and like their IT and their organization. And, and also just the reality that in the U.S. people do jockey for, you know, the best appointment with the best doctors and often other people don't even bother because they can't afford it and they don't have insurance or their insurance doesn't cover it um, or they don't understand how, how the insurance works in the first place. And so this is, this is how healthcare typically works. It's just in a sped up higher stakes, higher visibility fashion here. So we're all seeing it. Um, we, we've kind of trained people to act this way. And, and yet, I think there has been a lot of community spirit in the US. And you could say that what we're seeing now is the product of the failures of the last month, both how slow the administration has been and how many stories we've already heard about people who are savvy or just kind of lucky getting vaccines before they were 
at least according to the, to the prioritization rule, supposed to. So you hear enough of those, you, you hear enough about vaccines just sitting in the freezer and eventually you start doing what's best for you because you figure that's how we're gonna get people vaccinated anyway, uh, given that the authorities can't seem to do it in the way they were, they were planning to. Do you think there's a case to be made for, for just having set up a, a, a parallel system for administering these, these vaccines? I mean, you, you talk about the, the problems with the U.S. health system, and I don't think we really need to go into detail with that to get the listeners on board with in agreement that those problems exist. And from what I've read about the, the Israeli system, yes, they have a fantastic database so that 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 speeds things up very well it's, it's well centralized and means that the proper things can be recorded but at the same time this this is not a complicated operation you don't even need a doctor to administer the vaccine you don't need to worry about a lot of um of possible side effects there are some but the sort of things can be handled in a short sort of uh, pre-shot questionnaire so I think we, we briefly touched last week on how some, some pharmacies could be getting involved. That's already happening with pharmacies giving the vaccine uh, in some high, high street pharmacies in the UK. Um, so that's one example of a sort of parallel system that could be delivering this. But given that a, a lot of the complaints we've heard are about these big hospitals that are not doing a great job with prioritizing their own staff or not doing a great job getting the vaccine out to the population, I mean, should we have been going through hospitals at all? Wouldn't it have been better to set something up that would work on this scale that hospitals would never were never designed for? Yeah, I think in retrospect, hospitals were not were not a great choice here, or at least, as you said, it could have been happening in parallel. So, like, we shouldn't necessarily have been waiting for hospitals in any way. You could say, here, here's enough for as many staff as we think. Uh, need it and are going to accept it. And by the way, it seems like we didn't factor in in any of these estimates um, that some people are going to be hard to track down, especially over the holidays. Some people are going to say no, even in the healthcare space. So we, that's one reason that there are excess uh, vaccines. Um, but yeah, I mean, hospitals are not really set up to do this, and they're they're not. They don't tend to be run in a way that would be efficient in, in a situation like this. And you know, I think that's one thing that that really pops about Israel too, is that this is happening in, in lots of different places at the same time from the start. And with the spirit of let's get as many people vaccinated as possible, even as we we also uh, try to prioritize who, who those people are, we, we, don't, we don't only do that. Uh, by the way, I, I should give a caveat or two about Israel because it's easy to say, okay, they're first, what are the reasons? And then name some plausible reasons. And I think we've seen throughout this pandemic that um, we can we can talk about a place that looks like it's been really successful at suppressing cases, tracing cases, whatever, and then two months later, suddenly it's it's one of the cautionary tales. So um, let's keep an eye on how Israel does between here and 100%, and also remember that uh, the the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are not getting the vaccine at this point. And there's some finger pointing about who's to blame for that, but th this isn't uh, everyone who's kind of under the jurisdiction of Israel. Right. There are indeed always caveats. Um, okay. Next big topic is we have these, these tested methods of, of vaccinating people and with the various vaccines, they, fairly universally involve two shots, um, spaced 
roughly four weeks apart. I know I'm I'm overgeneralizing, but we're generally talking about two shots about a month apart, um, regardless regardless of which vaccine we're talking about. Um, obviously, that raises some some new logistics issues, like making sure you have the second shot ready, making sure people can come back to the same place, making sure there's not a long line on the days they don't have to they, they are expected to come back to that place. Uh, there's all sorts of issues. And for some time now, we've been hearing arguments in favor of, of an idea like first doses first, which is not to hold the second doses in reserve, just give everyone the, the first dose um, using whatever available supplies there are. There's the idea of mix and match, which is if in cases where there isn't enough of, of one vaccine available, then you can give people a, a second shot with a different vaccine, uh, which, I believe is policy in the UK and in general, again, I'm, I'm seriously overgeneralizing here, but a lot of medical authorities have, have spoken out against these options. And I think the tide has turned a little bit since, since Joe Biden has announced that he, that his administration will go in the direction of first doses first. Um, so that has cleared the way a little bit, but there's still a lot of people who, when interviewed about it, they're, their focus is saying, this isn't tested. I'm not comfortable doing something that isn't exactly in the way it's tested. Um, therefore, we should wait until we have more information. We need more data. And then maybe we can think about these alternatives. Um, what do you think, Carl? Should I mean, should, How cautious should we be about administering these, these vaccines in ways other than the exact way that we trialed them? I mean... Whether we consciously do it or not, it's going to happen and has been happening, I'm sure. There are people- It even who, happened in the trials, to be fair. Yeah, because of course it did. I mean, it's it's so so much has to go right for the second dose to, to be administered at exactly the right time. And inevitably, people are going to opt out. They had a bad experience the first time. I, I, I know people who have been vaccinated and describe very matter-of-factly, oh, you know, I was I couldn't work the next day, but I was okay the next the day after that. Like, for some people, that'd be reason enough not to get the second dose, which, which sucks, but I understand that. And then you add in just how messy the administration has been and like failure to connect at the right time. Maybe there isn't actually an appointment available really close to that, to that date. Uh, people forget which one they got. The record keeping isn't perfect. You know, we can think of all sorts of reasons why it would fail naturally. So I guess the question is like, should we wait? Should we have good enough data systems so we can track the times that it doesn't happen and then find out what happens to those people and then see what the difference is in effectiveness? And the answer is probably not because if if there are scientists who are saying it's too dangerous, they would probably want to wait months and find out not just you know, is the rate of infection in the following month significantly lower for the people who got just one dose? But how long does that immunity last? That's one of the big questions. Um, I think that there's a pretty strong case that this is enough of an emergency that uh, we, we should try things that we expect will likely have the best overall societal outcome. Um, even if we don't have all the data to support it, if if all the data we do have suggests it, it is likely to be better overall. And in my very amateur, and as you said, there are always caveats way, uh, it feels like this is probably the, the better choice overall. 
Um, I have heard some concern, though, that maybe in the long term, it's riskier that maybe it is more likely to give rise to mutations, which some of which can be dangerous, as, as we talked about in the last episode. So uh, that that may be worth considering. And maybe another consideration is we shouldn't really bother doing this until we've proven that we can use the doses faster. Like the issue right now isn't that there aren't enough doses. The issue is that we're not uh, and, and this, I'm talking about the U.S. now because you mentioned Biden's statement, and he'll, we think, be president next week. Um, we, we, we don't yet have a shortage of doses available to administer, and we don't yet need the second doses. Uh, but when we do, I think this is this is a, a sensible option, even without all the data that uh, maybe you know the scientists who who work on getting these things approved would like to see. Yeah, that's a good point that it, in, in practice, it has not really mattered. Although I do wonder if, if the U.S. had decided early on, we are, we're doing this first doses first thing, thus ramp up the infrastructure. I mean, again, we're giving, we're giving these directives hypothetically to all sorts of different medical systems, states, counties, and so on. Um, so it's, it's going to be implemented in different ways. But if there had been the first doses first approach in mind from the beginning, maybe the infrastructure would have ramped up faster and maybe we'd be getting different results. Maybe it would end up being an issue um, or we'd, be, we'd end up dipping into the stores faster if, if we were, I mean, setting different rules for who we're prioritizing, for instance, and I don't know. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely with you and might even phrase things a little stronger that we're being too cautious. And a couple of things that, that you dug up in your research, Carl, that I, uh, I wanted to mention even quote, one is from a, a guy named Robert Wiblin from the, the, the 80,000 hours project. Um, he tweeted, a serious reasoning error that is particularly common among educated people is to argue that if a study hasn't been done on a particular question, we have no data and therefore no basis on which to form beliefs or act. And that's obviously true. I mean, it, it, that, I mean, it's obviously true that it's an error. Let me be clear. Um, just because we haven't done the study doesn't mean we don't know anything. Think, thinking, thinking via analogy is one of the, the most powerful tools we have. And one, one really, I mean, I laughed at this when I, when I read it. It's not funny, but it, an interesting illustration of that is an article on, on Stat News quoted a, a, a medical expert that, that said that these sort of approaches don't rely on, on actual studies, they rely on, quote, general principles of vaccinology. Like, well, if there's ever a time to rely on general principles of vaccinology, then I think it's now. I mean, I, I would like to place my trust in general principles of vaccinology. I, mean, I would think the benefit of the doubt would go in the direction of those general principles, not that we assume that there's some bogeyman out there waiting to get us if we, if, if we do follow the general principles. So, Definitely, there seems to be an overabundance of caution, uh, which might just be the nature of being a medical authority. I mean, you don't want to go out there proposing something risky to find out that that's the thing that causes the new the new variant or, or causes some some bigger unforeseen issue. And and Carl, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I had a hard time digging up the reasoning for for the risk of mutation. Uh, so the, the idea is that if, if people are sort of half vaccinated, uh, you know, you can't be half pregnant, but apparently you can be sort of half immune. So that becomes, I think one, one expert referred to it as a, a, a playground for, for the virus to mutate and develop 
develop defenses against the vaccine or offenses, I guess, against the vaccine. So it would, it would make it easier for the virus to develop in a vaccine resistant way. Um, do you have a better grip than I do on, on how exactly that would work or, or what the real risk is of that? No, and I think if you were arguing the other side, you could say, well, we don't have enough data to say that this vaccine after one dose will, will lead to more dangerous mutations. So I think there it is reasoning by analogy, maybe from other uh, vaccines, although I think there aren't that many that are quite like this one. I, you know, it's, it's so funny to think that like we would never in fighting this global emergency not use reasoning and and basically you could say educated guesses maybe that's underselling how confident we can be that something will work but when when hospitals were in crisis throughout the world hospital workers tried stuff right that that's that's what they had to do they had drugs that might or might not work they tried it they had uh, treatments in terms of shifting people's position. They tried those. Some of them turned out later to be in, ineffective once they were studied, but I don't think anyone said, well, we shouldn't have tried stuff when we had nothing that was working. Um, and we also have had health officials using this approach of, well, we don't know for sure, therefore, um, in ways that have turned out to be really harmful. I mean, there was this really mixed messaging on masks early on. And some of it was based on, we don't really know if masks are effective in, in this kind of um, coronavirus, or we don't know how people will, will sort of comply and will they, will they not comply in a dangerous way? And so we're just gonna tell them they're not effective. You know, like we've, we've, we've seen what happens when we, when we take this cautious approach around asymptomatic transmission, around um, transmission through the air in fine particles. We, we, we've we've often like made the mistake and it set us back um, of not of not saying what is likely true because we're, we don't have the study to prove it and time is always of the essence and maybe no more so than when it comes to you know can we get a lot more people vaccinated sooner yeah and it's, we talked a little bit about prioritization earlier and, and it, that's an issue that's not going to go away, especially when vaccine supplies are low and or the infrastructure hasn't ramped up enough to deliver all those vaccines into people's arms. And one of the biggest debates that, again, it's not going away anytime soon, is what the main priority of that prioritization is. And up to this point, it, it seems like the main goal has been I guess there's two main goals. One is frontline healthcare workers, and the second is is the very elderly. And those both seem like reasonable, defensible first steps. Um, I mean, the, the more elderly people who are vaccinated, the fewer of them will, will die, which is itself a good thing. And the secondary good thing is it will put less pressure on the health system. And of course, frontline healthcare workers are, are at great risk, uh, both of, of contracting the disease, of spreading the disease, and I mean, if anybody deserves it, if we want to put it that way, they, they do deserve it. But as we creep away from the most obvious choices, I think we can put, we can, we can frame the decision we have to make in, in one pretty simple way, which is the risk of, uh, the, the, usually the fairly small risk of death or serious illness versus the risk of increased spread. So do we vaccinate people who are 68 years old because they're the next age on the list? Or do we vaccinate people who are uh, 
who work in certain professions, like maybe maybe firefighters or, or or teachers or people who are are public facing and have a risk of of spreading the spreading the, the virus much more than say your average sixty eight year old or maybe a little older retiree would. Um, what what do you think, Carl? Do, do you have a do you lean one way or the other? Do you think that the the public debate is leaning one way or the other? It seems like the debate is leaning toward age as a factor. And the main reason I've seen is that it's so much easier to describe and screen for and harder to game. I mean, there are people with fake IDs, sure. But in general, you know if you're in the group and the people trying to decide if you're in the group know how to check. And I think that it's not so much just that that prevents people from from getting the vaccine before their turn, but it also just makes things simpler and, and faster. In theory, I helped a 76-year-old yesterday sign up for vaccine appointment in, in New York now that it's um, covering people 75 and up. And the, there were 30 screening questions before the age question, when I think the age question should have been first because it's simplest in the biggest group. So, you know, we still are dealing with these poor systems. But I, I think... That's a really good reason why age seems to have risen in priority. Another reason I haven't heard as much is just, yeah, maybe on average, someone who's 68 has fewer contacts and less risk of being a spreader uh, than someone in their 30s, but they have a much greater risk of needing the hospital if they get infected. And we're at the stage of the virus in so much of the country and the world where probably relieving pressure on hospital systems is really important right now. Um, and, and that hospitals are near the brink. So, uh, and, and maybe may for a while given what seem like some seasonal effects. So uh, yeah, it seems like age is, is being prioritized more. There are downsides, as you mentioned, but uh, it, it makes sense on balance to me. Do you think that the disproportionate political power of the elderly in the US plays a role? Undoubtedly, although there's some of the the worker groups have quite a bit of power too, and um, maybe the the elderly is more of a strong voting block. But there also isn't an election coming up very soon, and it's sort of ambiguous which party and which administration would get credit right now. Um, I guess in states maybe it's more clear, although some states also had elections. So. I think the timing suggests maybe that's that's driving it less than it normally would. Well, that's a rare positive note about one of the more cynical things we can talk about. So at, before we run the risk of switching back to extreme cynicism, let's stop there. Um, we're about out of time anyway. So uh, Carl, thank you for joining me. That was another very enlightening episode here of Dangerous Exponents. Thank you, Jeff. Um, for those of you who just cannot get enough of our COVID-19 coverage, I already mentioned earlier, we're dangerousexponents.com. You can find all of our episodes at the site. It's Podbean. I'm sure you can subscribe at all of your favorite podcast apps as well. So we have seven previous episodes, especially the last episode might be of interest also touching on the vaccine rollout. Plus, uh, many of you probably know that Carl and I got our podcasting start doing the Tennis Abstract podcast, which as the name suggests is mostly about tennis, but 
Uh, we're working on a new episode that will also be released in the next couple of days about um, sports in general and, and how they've reacted to the pandemic with Wall Street Journal writer Joshua Robinson. So you will want to check that out as well. So podcast.tennisabstract.com or find us on Twitter, me at Tennis Abstract, Carl at Carl Bialik. Um, let us know what you think, especially if you have something nice to say. Uh, thanks again, Carl. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.